Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Hello, Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. Those of you who follow our blog and our social media posts know that we have been talking a lot about depression lately, and for good reason. According to the ADAA, 322 million people suffer from depression worldwide. That's 16 million in the United States alone. And, as is true for anxiety, women are much more likely to suffer from depression than men. The most widely used treatment for depression is medication, often combined with therapy, but more than half of all people diagnosed with depression will not respond to the first medication that is prescribed for them. But what does this mean? Well, it usually takes a month for an antidepressant to kick in. So by the time you realize your meds aren't working, you spent another month suffering from fatigue, muscle aches, overwhelming sadness, social withdrawal, difficulty concentrating insomnia, or any number of awful life-disrupting symptoms. For some people, finding the right medication can take months of trial and error, which means months of side effects on top of crushing depression. It's a nightmare. But don't lose hope, depression sisters. There's an exciting new method of using pharmacogenetics to discover which drugs are most likely to be effective. In other words, through a simple DNA test, doctors can now use a patient's genetic profile to personalize the prescription process. In January of this year, the results of the largest ever pharmacogenetic study of patients with depression were published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. The data confirmed that using genetics to personalize medication can indeed be quite an effective tool. To tell us more about these exciting advances, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Sagar Parikh, professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan Comprehensive Depression Center and one of the study's lead investigators. Now, I had to do that introduction because Mags, having recently moved to Ohio, is not allowed to say university. (laughs) I know, unless Dr. Parikh, would you mind if we just said um, that school up north comprehensive depression center? Uh, Deal with your anxiety, just say it. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one. And I don't even like football, but this has struck me so hard. I'm not even a football person. But already living here for six years, I I know there's certain words I can't say. So welcome, Dr. Parikh. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for the invite. I know that we don't have too much time with you, so I'm going to cut right to the chase. Can you tell us about the study that you recently conducted, what you were looking at, and a little bit about the methodology? Well, the first uh, question is, like, what is the problem to be solved? So the problem that we have is that when we are trying to find an antidepressant to choose for someone who has depression, we have some clinical ideas of what might be more suitable for someone, but we don't have that much that specifically says, this medicine is better for this person. So one of the biggest quests in psychiatry is personalizing care, trying to identify something like a blood test or some other kind of uh, test that might say, for this condition, this treatment is a good match. 
So in the area of antidepressants and uh, depression, one of the advances in recent years has been genetic testing. And here the idea is that the genetic analysis of someone can yield two kinds of information. One is, can this person handle this medicine okay? And two, are there any clues that this medicine might be particularly good for this person based on possible causes of depression and so on? That latter part, do we have a genetic test that matches somebody based on a cause of depression? We're not there yet, but we have some clues that give us a, a little bit of a hint of what might work better. But where we're pretty far down the road is, can this person handle this medicine okay? So genetic analysis can help us tell what the shape of this person's liver is like in terms of handling medicines, and therefore, can you safely take this medicine, or might you have more problems than the average person? So that's that's the background, and I, I'm not sure if you have any questions about that background. You're basically saying that what we can tell best is what medicines are not going to agree with us, with our liver. Is that what you're saying? In essence, because our liver processes everything, all medicines, all food, and everything like that, and it acts like a filter. And one of the things it can filter is medicines. And depending on how your liver works, it, it'll either filter kind of loosely or filter too aggressively, which means that compared to the average person, if it filters too aggressively, that means it, it prevents things from getting in much or it breaks them down really fast. That means you may need a higher dose of a medicine in order for it to work. And if it filters too loosely, it may mean that you're, quote, a slow metabolizer and you, you may experience a toxicity because a normal dose is actually a high dose for you. A normal dose for the average person is a high dose for you. And so that, that part is well understood about how the liver does that. So that would explain why one patient might do very well on a particular SSRI, let's say, and another patient will do terribly on that same SSRI because everyone's liver well, things differently. Yes, with the explanation being particularly that it, it, it uh, affects the, the dose, uh, the blood level, and the side effect pattern. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a rigid predictor of like, oh, wow, your, your brain needs more serotonin, and therefore this genetic test uh, you know, definitely said you need an SSRI. It's not that specific. It's more about how well will you handle it. And there's a hint of you know, how well might you react to the SSRI. But that's, that's the, the soft part. The really strong part is how well will your body handle that? And should there be a dose adjustment or avoidance of this medicine? So you were involved in a study that was investigating the efficacy of using a genetic test for predicting which medications might be better for a particular patient, correct? That's right. So in the last few years, a few tests have emerged and GeneSight is one such test. And what you do is you have this test which is just a, a cheek swab, so it's not a blood test. Mm -hmm. You send it off to a lab and you get a printout back. And this printout tells you that this person is either normal or abnormal in how they handle the following medicines. So you basically generate a list of, yep, these medicines are normal, normally handled by this person. These medicines, the dose may be too high. They may be slow metabolizers, so the normal dose is too much for them. And th these medicines, they may be the opposite, that they need higher than normal doses of this medicine. So you generate a list 
kind of like a Christmas list of, uh, you know, good things and bad things for each person. And then from that list, uh, ideally, the doctor and the patient can talk about choosing one of the medicines that that's on the good list. Oh, that's great. So it's definitely a little bit of a roadmap for psychiatrists and prescribers to use in terms of trying to pick the right medication. Because, you know, a lot of us depression sisters, we end up going back and forth, trial and error, sometimes for years and years and years, trying to find the right medication for our bodies. So the right dosage. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really important work. So, So what were the results of the study? So the uh, first of all, who who deserves or who who can benefit the most from this test? Well, it's really not necessarily uh, for everybody. It's not like the the minute you need to have an antidepressant, you should have this test because it, that's not how it's been studied. The way it's been studied is who has problems with antidepressants, and then how do they do getting this test? So we took people about twelve hundred people from across the U.S who already had depression and who already had tried at least one antidepressant and had problems. Either they couldn't handle it uh, in terms of side effects or the medicine didn't work for them. So in that population, what we found is knowing what the test results were and using that information to help us pick a medicine for that person, that improved the chances of success in treating the depression to remission by about 50%. Are there some people who might take this test and it just won't work for them, the test, for some reason? Well, a better way to think of it is if you fell and twisted your ankle and had ankle x-rays, if there's no fracture, then the you know that doesn't help you anymore except to tell you that there's no fracture. Right. If there's a fracture, the x-ray helps guide what you do next in terms of surgery or a cast or whatever. So it's yeah. the same thing with this test that the majority of people will not have a genetic problem. And so they, oh. they uh, won't necessarily get any advice from this test, but, except to be told, relax, you know, your body handles medicines okay, and you have the full range of medicines to choose from. Okay, so that, oh, that makes so, sense. So that's reassuring, and that's, that's helpful to know that Hey, I'm I'm normal, if you will. About 30% of people will have something that's abnormal, and so then that'll start to create categories of like good pills and bad pills. And it's for those people that there's some guidance, just like a an X-ray showing a fracture of what to do next. Are you measuring genes in the liver? Is that what you're measuring with the test? No. The, the funny thing about Mother Nature is whenever there's a gene for something. There's all, almost every gene has choices, if you will. There are variants of the same gene. Okay. So if, if you want to say, um, I've got a gene that makes a protein that helps transport serotonin across cells, that gene might exist in several variants. In the same way, the genes that code for the enzymes in the liver that do all this digesting, you can have the genes that code for fast workers or slow workers or normal workers. So what this tells you is in that gene that does that particular job, do you have a fast worker, slow worker, or normal worker? And uh, if you have a fast worker, then those are the people who quickly uh, metabolize drugs and therefore you need a higher dose. That is really interesting. And and you explained it really, really well because I'm, I'm not known for my science expertise and barely passed any any science in high school. So, and even I got that explanation. 
Yeah, no, and, that's and what that'll you be really look- helpful for our listeners, I think. And you said about several times, and that's what we were actually trying to do with all these questions, have a Canadian pronounce about. Ah, I see. Sorry. <laughs> Which is really good. Your work is, it gives us a lot of hope because we've all known people who've struggled with trying to find the right medication. Uh, in fact, our next guest is a depression sister who did struggle for, I think, decades trying to find the right yeah. for her depression. Uh, so her, her name is Carmela Walgren. She's a longtime depression sister who experienced success using the gene site genetic test after decades of struggling to find the right medication. Hi, Carmela. Hi. Hi. Thank hi. you for inviting me. Hi. Oh, thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. I am a depression sister of yours, and I uh, I didn't know you guys were out there, but I'm def- I will definitely be a fan watching oh, all the things you do. Oh, thank you so I, much. We're a fan of yours, too, because we know it's sometimes not easy to talk about mental health journeys. and Yeah. Well, my friend was saying, you're so brave to go and talk about so openly about depression. I even wrote an article about it. And she said, that's so brave of you to do that. And I said, you know what? It's not brave to talk about depression. It's brave. It's for everybody who wakes up every day with depression and gets through a single day. That's what's brave. Yeah, that is absolutely. So... Can you tell us a little bit about your right. mental health journey? Sure. So I'm 72 now. When I was 22, I was diagnosed with depression. I was, um, I was, I had just graduated from college and I was going to my first job every day. And I realized that when I was reaching over to turn off the alarm clock, I'd start crying because I had another day I had to get through. Like actual tears coming down my face were crying. So I realized I really should call somebody. (laughs) I should Mm -hmm. do something about this. And I called a mental health clinic and I was diagnosed with depression. I even was in a hospital for six months in Pittsburgh where I lived. So it was there that I started this long journey of 50 years of trying different medications and just took a long time. I would have different side effects as Dr. Freak was saying that, you know, some people process things differently. And for me, the, pain of depression was, it was real physical pain. It felt like a very heavy feeling on me. And you hear people say, I was so depressed, I couldn't get off the couch. Well, I felt like I couldn't get the couch off me. Mm -hmm. That was what, you know, it was really this heavy feeling, like not so easy doing that. And then like the ever-present stigma of depression is there because you're ashamed. You, You isolate yourself because you're ashamed. Like here I had three healthy children and a nice husband. And why wasn't I happy? Why am Mm. I sad? Why am I moping around? You know, it's got to be, I'm just lazy. I'm stupid. Why can't I do Mm -hmm. anything? So we still um, hear that all the time from people. Yeah. yeah, We still hear all the time that people, they blame themselves or feel like it's a character flaw um, rather than an illness. Right. So as Dr. Parikh said, it's really a disability, you know, mm-hmm. it really, uh, and it's only now I'm realizing, looking back at my life, my God, I was a disabled person. I really was, mm-hmm. but I just was uh, lucky enough to be married to someone who was kind and who could take care of the family around the edges where I was like falling down on it. I remember like when my kids were young, mm-hmm. I would get them off to school. Then I would get dressed in my jeans and t-shirt, you know, for the day and then climb right back into bed. And so I'd be dressed when they would get home at 3.30. I could pretend that I was up and about doing things all day when really I'd just been dressed in my 
clothes and laying in bed all day. We know those days. We know those yes, days. You have to, yeah. You know those days? Yes. yes. I'm also a depression sister, and I am very familiar with the can't get out of bed days and the having to fake yeah. it. Days yeah. And, 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 the physical, yeah. and the physical pain of depression. People don't often talk about the body aches. Yeah. Isn't that right? That's true. They don't. It's, it is, it's a physical pain. And I had great doctors. Like my husband was a member of Congress for a number of years, and we lived in Washington area. And I went to NIH to like, let's find the world's foremost authority to help me figure this out. You know? NIH and is I, the National Institute of Health, just in case right. anyone out there doesn't know. Right. And at the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, this doctor who, who you know, was very much a specialist in depression and is a great doctor. And he knew, also did research in seasonal affective disorder and knew a lot of stuff. And he tried to help me and did his best. I mean, we tried different medications. So all these years, so I was able to, with antidepressants, I was able to get rid of the physical pain. But instead of the physical pain, I got like sleeping 12 or 14 hours a day. Mm. Like that was a day. I was trading off, you know, okay, okay, well, I'm willing to do that because at least I'm not in pain. I would just be sedated and sleepy all the time. And so there were years like that. Then we moved to California and I was at Stanford. And then we moved back to Washington and I was at private doctors. So I had like these really great doctors and they were dedicated to trying to help me. But it wasn't until we moved to North Carolina and I saw my doctor there. So he said that there was this new test, a genetic test called GeneSight that he'd been watching for a while. And he said, now it's available and affordable to people. And that since I was on Medicare, I would be able to have the test paid for by Medicare. So he also said, it meant a lot to me, he said that the Mayo Clinic was the background research people Mm -hmm. that had developed this test. So we took a cheek swab, just, you know, wiping like a Q-tip inside my cheek and we mailed it off. And then a few days later, he got the results. And we were both really surprised to find that the worst thing for me to be taking was this thing that I had most lately been on for 12 or 15 years and sleeping all the time. And so it, the gene side test really steered me away from taking this thing that's really bad for me and then gave me a nice list of all these other ones to try. And the first ones among the green column of different ones to try really worked. So now for the past year and a half, I'm really finally functioning and happy, and I really feel like GeneSight saved my life. Like, I feel like I'm in a lifeboat, and I'm trying to get as many other people in the lifeboat. I hope people who have had trouble finding the right medication, I hope they can find the kind of result with the GeneSight test. That's awesome. Can I ask you a question? So a lot of our anxiety sisters and depression sisters feel like it's really hard for us to get out of the house. Uh I'm assuming you had to be out of that house and sort of dressed in actual clothing quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Out of my pajamas. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, so it turns out that for me, my depression, although I say I had 50 years of depression, those were episodes of like many months at a time of depression where I wasn't out of the house, no matter what, like I didn't go to that nice party. I didn't go to the grocery store. I didn't go to the mailbox because I was afraid someone would say, how are you? And I would start crying because I would be thinking, oh, my God, how am I? Just think about it. It's terrible. So I wasn't doing those things then. But there were other months when I was just a regular person and I was able to do things. And I'm 
I'm a very sociable person in real life when I'm not depressed. So if you can get outside of yourself and enjoy meeting other people, enjoy asking them about themselves, then it makes it a lot easier. So you could do that at times where the depression wasn't so intense. Right. And then you had times where it was really like you really couldn't get out of the house at all. Right. Yeah. They were like episodes. I don't know how common that is. And it was more like episodes of deep depression and then episodes of like, oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? You know? Yeah. That's how I've experienced depression is episodic. Is that right? Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people talk to us about that, you know, and then it's like sort of feeling fine for a while and then with either anxiety or depression and then Mm -hmm. things resurface out of nowhere. Like nothing happens, but they wake up one day. So like, you know how everybody gets sad sometimes at things? Mm -hmm. When I would get sad, I'd get terrified because I'd think, oh my God, here comes another thing of depression. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't give myself any chance to be a regular sad person about a sad incident because I right. was terrified. Like, here comes that depression again. So, uh, yeah, I'm very much like that yeah. with my anxiety in that I I spend a lot of time trying to prevent myself from getting depressed. Like, mm-hmm. I get worried. Can't get sick because if I get sick, then I won't be able to exercise, and then I might get depressed, and I really get concerned about yeah. that. Yeah, it's such a horrendous experience, depression. That you know, we don't want to suffer from it <laughs> a day more than we have to. Right, right. You don't give yourself the understanding that you need to give yourself. Yeah, and you don't get it from other people either. Exactly. No. The more we can get rid of the stigma of it and see it as the disease that it is, and be kind to each other and not be ashamed. Yeah, it's so important. Abby and I often don't use the term mental illness. We use the term brain illness in the sense oh. that we want to we want to show people there's a real part of your body that right. is yeah, impacted. Just because, just because you can't take a blood test to see if you have depression doesn't mean that it isn't real. You know, people right. we always we use the analogy that if you break your leg and are wearing a cast, no one is going to say to you, come on, have a positive attitude. You can get up those stairs. Yeah, yeah. But, but depression, the cast is inside your amygdala. So it's yeah. really hard for people to see it. And therefore, they'll say to you, oh, you know, come on, just be positive or relax. Right, right. A, a few months ago, I thought, you know, I really should get a handle on losing some weight that I always wanted to lose. So I went to a Weight Watchers meeting. And this, and the woman, the speaker there, you know, the leader, Mm-hmm. said, today we're going to talk about how happiness is a choice. Like you could just wake up and right. you could just be happy yeah. if you choose to be happy. You know, I just had to raise my hand and say, it isn't a choice. There's a thing like clinical depression and people can't just choose to be happy. And, you know, maybe they need help. And there are many people who do need to take medicine for depression. Mm-hmm. And, and every, uh, every workshop that Mags and I do, we always, we ch- get people to chant it's a disorder, not a decision. Right. That's exactly right. Right. No one would make the decision to either suffer terribly from depression or anxiety. Uh, uh, You know, no one would make that decision. It's it's not fun. And and that's what Max and I are trying to do is get out there and, and work on the stigma. We we're very big into self-compassion. Like you mentioned before, people are blaming themselves for an illness and we really need to change the dialogue around that. One of the things Abby and I always say is that Mm -hmm. for many people, one of the steps is medication when you're really at that point where you can't get out of the house or you're just really not functioning. Mm -hmm. But what Mm -hmm. other kinds of things have you felt found helpful in handling depression? 
the thing that you mentioned, one of your tips about managing depression that I think is so important is like not to isolate yourself, to call a friend and talk to them. And even if I wasn't able to say, I'm in trouble, I'm really sad, even if I just called to say, hey, did you see that movie? Or, you know, and I'd also mm-hmm. distract myself by watching funny movies or reading Nora Ephron books. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so see funny movies or books, but really calling people, calling, you know, you have a handful of friends, call them and see what they're doing and just reach out. And also, if you can think about other ways to help other people, not just with depression, but, you know, to volunteer at a at a soup kitchen or something like that, get outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are great. Those are great tips. Yeah, we, we thank you so much for your time, Carmela. You've been so open with our listeners and we really appreciate that. Mags and I believe that sharing our stories is so valuable to the community and we really, really appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. I'll be following you from now on. Oh. Now that I know about you. Thank you very much thank for the work you. that you do. Thank and you. thank okay. you, um, Dr. Parikh. Thank you so much as well. Thank you, ladies. Bye, sisters. Oh, bye. 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 Thank you so much. If you are interested in learning more about GeneSight, you can visit their website, www.genesight.com. We have a couple of announcements. First, for our professional listeners and mental health advocates, we're going to have a table at this year's ADAA conference in Chicago. That's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Please stop by and see us. We've got swag. Second, you know that online workshop we've been talking about? Well, it's almost here. We'll be rolling out our program, Stop the Spinning, in early April. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter on our website so you can take advantage of our sisterhood discount. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, questions, an idea for a podcast, or anything else, please email us. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would so appreciate your leaving us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes so we can get the word out to more Anxiety Sisters. Also, our podcast is now on Spotify. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety Sisters don't go it alone. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.